Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Wallace Waveland Contest. This is episode 186 and this week I have a very special guest with me. Uh, it's her first time joining uh, since I've been, since I've taken over as host. Uh, please welcome our London editor, Joanna Wright. Hi Jo, how are you doing? Good, I'm, I'm very, uh, very flattered to be very special guest. That was unexpected. <laughs> Thank you. You were telling me earlier about something funny that you witnessed yesterday. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I don't know if it's funny. Um, well, what I was saying was um, I really hate cell phones. And I, I think it's probably the worst thing that's happened to society in the last sort of 20 years. And, you know, I, I'm, accept, I'm prepared to kind of accept that that's a fringe view. But I think there are just some limits that we have to set as a society. And... Um, Firstly, let me tell you why I hate them. So as I was saying to you earlier, I was coming here from Liverpool Street. We The office isn't far from Liverpool Street. It's not even like half a mile. And about three different people walked into me because they're just, you know, like screen walking. Um, and one day they're going to fall in a manhole. But, you know, that would be like just retribution. I'm sure that has happened <laughs> before. Totally, yeah. I'm sure it's happened. Um, well, I mean, one thing I heard was that... Um, the, and this is very, very sad, but the rates of drowning are up among children because parents are so busy staring at their phones the whole time that they're not watching their kids. But um, anyway, you see, as, as this is the kind of statistic that I collect. But the, the one kind of egregious example this week I saw was um, at an external event that is somehow miraculously was still went ahead. Um, and um, they, there was a panel and on the panel was a moderator and the moderator was perfectly competent and fine and everything was going swimmingly on this very nice panel with all these incredibly intelligent and sort of with it essay managers. Um, and then halfway through the, the session, his phone rang, the moderator's phone rang and he, he kind of picked it up and turned it off and you know, it's, it's annoying, but fair enough. But then he started answering his email like during the session and then towards the end of the towards the end of the panel his phone rang again and he answered it um and I I yeah I I, I just couldn't <laughs> I'm just curious was his was his mic on while he answered it so he could you could hear yeah. him say like hello he kind oh. of moved back a bit like his body moved back and he had a lapel mic I guess he kind of just moved his head out of the way because the 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 sound engineers were turning on people's mics as they spoke Oh gosh. Uh, so not everyone was kind of, you know, being channeled at the same time. But um, yeah, I, I just thought like, you know, maybe society's breaking down with this with this virus. Everyone thinks it's, <laughs> you know, n next thing we're going to start looting storefronts and so on. Well, the thing is, like, some I mean, we we at Waters we have to moderate sometimes, right? And uh, this is something that I would never ever do. I mean, sometimes we keep our phones on us, but yeah, it's so rude. Like, I would keep my phone on to maybe. Um, deal with the producers of the conference and if they have to like uh maybe let me know uh last minute or they, they send a text saying like oh five minutes left or something but i would never pick my phone up uh first of all it would be on silent not even vibrate okay <laughs> exactly. it would be on silent <laughs> and and oh my oh my gosh i would never ever do that <laughs> no i mean it was like being at dinner with a 16 year old you know everyone's like <laughs> just completely out of the conversation but yes so um i'm off to the risk quant summit after this call um which should be a really good event although um you know it would probably be quite thin cuz i imagine a lot of people have been affected by travel bans and so on mm -hmm. um but still i'm looking forward to that it's a very high quality event yeah Okay. Anyway, uh, I brought you on to uh, today, I guess, to talk about your latest feature, which is on, which is 
looking at NLP and like the new tools that are being used by banks that could kind of push that a little bit forward. So um, your feature starts off at, with a joke, you know, like, where do horses go to school? <laughs> and the answer is, Haver. Haver. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start with the topic of chatbots, um, which are also called AI conversational agents. You said that this is a this is a joke that was made by Google's new bot um, called Mina. Could you tell us more about it and you know what um, the other famous bot in the market called Mitsuku <laughs> what uh, it had to say? So yeah, so I, I'd like to point out that I'm possibly the first journalist at Autos Technology to lead a story with a quote from a robot um, and get them past Tony. Um, and the robot I spoke to was Mitsuku. Uh, anyone can chat to her. You just go to her site and you open her up on uh, whatever client you, you prefer. I, I chose Facebook Messenger. Um, so the, the conceit of Mitsuku is that she's a young girl from Leeds and um, she's, I think she builds herself, although I could be wrong, but I, I seem to remember reading this on her website, but um, she seems to build herself as the best chatbot in the world. Um, and she has won the Loebner Prize, which is a slightly controversial prize of um, conversational agent, convincingness <laughs> I guess. sorry as i said earlier i'm on my first cappuccino um but she has passed several turing tests and um i think she you know she's she's considered pretty impressive so um i asked her what she thought of mina and she had an answer very ready she seemed quite salty um she said that it's very difficult to tell how good Mina is because Mina hasn't been put out there for the public to speak to yet and Google didn't release any kind of source code or anything like that which you know is not surprising because I think it cost um, well Google didn't actually say how much it cost but there's a very smart article online that estimated the cost that I think it was 1.5 million dollars yep. so you know that, that's a lot of very valuable IP to be making public. Mm, okay. And what do you think about um, these? Um, I, I, I guess the impressive thing about Mina is that she told this joke, or it rather. She she doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have pronouns it. yet, unlike Mitsuku. Um, I think one of the biggest Turing tests of robots is that they're able to, you know, humor is such a kind of idiosyncratically human thing, mm. and um, one of the one of the kind of holy grails is getting bots to talk to you as a human would talk to you, um, which is, you know, incredibly difficult and what the field has been concentrating on for a long time. And that's what Mina's supposed to do very well. Um, whether the joke is funny, as I say in the feature, is, you know, it's not a funny joke, <laughs> but <laughs> the fact that she was able, it rather was able to make it is um, extremely groundbreaking. So Google hasn't actually released Mina yet, right? I mean, what is, what is, one of the reasons why it hasn't done that yet. I mean, would would you think about, I mean, does Microsoft's T come to mind at all? Yeah, so um, when Google put Mina out, they put out a blog post um, and a kind of press release and an academic paper along with it. And in the blog post, I think it was, they said they probably wouldn't make it public for now because they wanted to make sure that the bot didn't kind of take on the racism and misogyny of the wider internet, <laughs> which is what happened with Microsoft's Tay. I mean, that was that was kind of purposely trained to be a very nasty bot by um, kind of mischievous internet trolls. Um, and yeah, as you as you said to me, um, 
I don't think we need to uh, give any examples of the kinds of things Tay ended up saying. Yeah, yeah, let's not. <laughs> um, but I think, um, before, you know, when you're talking about AI in general, this issue of um, bias encoded within it, it doesn't matter if it's chatbots or any other kind of, of, of the broad field of AI. Um, I think that's a huge conversation right now. Um, and, and incredibly interesting, There's the issue of algorithmic bias and algorithmic accountability. Uh, I was reading about this 10 years ago in the humanities context, or even, even longer ago, what I think the Americans call the liberal arts. But I think the conversation has been ahead of the STEM fields and those fields in considering ethics, which is not in, you know, unusual. I think kind of ethical considerations always begin in that sort of, in the kind of more artsy side of the, of the academy. Um, but I think we're seeing the the leakage of this conversation into STEM fields. Um, and I think people are starting to realize that technology in general is not a kind of neutral tool. It's always an unavoidably political because humans are, you know, always unavoidably political. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that kind of the most advanced thinking around al- algorithmic bias is not about completely removing all bias in the data because there always will be bias. Mm-hmm. When you select data, you're selecting data. There's just inevitably data that you leave out. Um, but it's it's to be aware of the bias that you're encoding. So, what you know, where am I coming from? What is my position? Um, whether you know, as a researcher, as a data scientist, what are my assumptions and and questioning those assumptions um, in the models that you're building in the data that you're feeding those models? Um, and you know, how do we make sure that it's not promoting racism or sexism or any other kind of you know socially mm-hmm socially encoded bias, I guess, that could um, prejudice the everything that runs on on AI, which is, you know, a huge amount of things. Um, I think the, the classic example in finance that's always brought up is um, giving people credit, literally, like, like capital. Yeah. Um, access to capital could be prejudiced by models. Um, mm. And there, you know, you, you've got kind of historically disadvantaged people could be prevented from starting businesses. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a very broad topic, but it is a very much one that I think will be central to these conversational agents because they're trained on so these huge amounts of data. Um, I think I kind of touched on that in the feature, but I didn't really go into it. It was, a, it was it's an important side note, but it wasn't kind of the focus of the article. Um, but there are some other kinds of ethical implications and to to NLP that we also have to consider. So the, these conversational agents are trained on huge data sets. And maybe sometimes you can't always be sure what's in those data sets. So there could be kind of GDPR style information, um, maybe credit card numbers or social security numbers. And, you know, who knows when the bot could spit that back out. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there's the whole issue of privacy. Um, yeah. So I think some of the most famous examples that people have in their home already of NLP is Amazon Alexa. And I think we (laughs) found out recently that uh, Amazon employees are listening to people through their Alexas. Um, So (laughs) I I think, I mean, it's, it's amazing how little of a splash that kind of story makes anymore. It's like no one even cares. Um, but I think it's a major issue. If the whole point of NLP is that machines can pause human speech um, and then present human speech or present increasingly convincing replicas of human speech back to us. So, you know, the 
the applications of this, once it gets sophisticated enough, could be quite terrifying. Right, right. And now Mina is based on an architecture, um, you know, called the transformer model, and and more specifically, um, something called BERT, which is which stands for the bidirectional encoder representations from transformers. It sounds like a mouthful, but yeah. So tell me, what exactly is a transformer model, and you know how how has um, well, I guess how has this model benefited the field of NLP? Um, so BERT is a backronym. Um, it was kind of reverse engineered to fit a Sesame Street character, and that's because it was <laughs> preceded by other Sesame Street characters, notably something called Elmo. Mm. Um, but it's kind of a trend within this field to use these Sesame Street names. Um, so a transformer is a kind of architecture for NLP. Um, and as you say, it was released, it was published by Google. It was um, Google's R&D. That was, I think, end of 2018. Mm. Um, I heard somewhere, so as I as I was saying, Mina was about 1.5 million. I think BERT cost about $500 to wow. train. And BERT is trained on something called the book corpus, mm. um, which is just a rather large set of unpublished books. And Bert has also read Wikipedia. So that is rather a large amount of words. And the, the reason that it's beneficial um, is, so for a number of reasons, um, the, a lot of those reasons are kind of encoded in the name Bert. If you look at the B, for instance, the bi-directional bit, um, what that means essentially is that the model can read left to right and also right to left. So if you give it a sentence, it can read left to right and right to left. That's also a slightly dishonest way of actually describing it because what it does is it reads kind of, <laughs> I can't quite <laughs> think how to describe this, but it reads the whole sentence at once, both backwards and forwards. Um, and so what it can do is it can get a lot more context um, mm. because when you speak, you, you use words in a sentence, but those words don't mean things outside of the sentence that they do within the sentence. This is yeah. amazing because this is the kind of thing that I did for my humanities degree a million years ago. Um, Ferdinand de Saussure was a, a French structuralist linguist, and this was one of his great insights. Um, but basically, as I, as I say in the feature, the word bank, for instance, has many, many different meanings and many shades of meanings. And once you use it in a sentence, it becomes clear what that meaning is to your listener, hopefully. Mm. Um, and so kind of really, really crude explanation, but prior models were not able to parse that entire context, whereas Burton Elmer and some others um, are able to. And so they can produce um, much more kind of human-like results and, and just be much more faster and efficient and um, yeah, m much, much better at being an NLP. So let me get this straight. So Let's say taking the word bank, for example, you're saying that this model um, it can read like back uh, from front to back and back to front, right? So like they would be able to, uh, I guess, find out what the meaning of bank is in that sentence based on the word, other words that surround the, in that sentence. So let's say, for example, uh, they would be able to tell that uh, bank in this particular sentence means like a, a place to borrow money, for example. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I, I hate to say definitively that's how it works because um, 
I, you know, I've spoken to a lot of really smart people for this feature. And when I sent them follow-up questions afterwards, they, they would kind of be like, no, <laughs> that's not what I mean. I, they're very, very <laughs> precise people. Um, uh, they work with language and they are very linguistically precise. Um, and I think mm. the field of NLP is so complicated that people get used to explaining things in these kind of very simple visual ways to the layperson like myself. Um, but yes, that, that's that's what I took from it. Um, and basically kind of the, there, there were some amazing innovations in this field prior to Burton Elmo. You know, I don't want to, I, d I don't want to give the impression that this is kind of the, the first revolution in this space at all. Yeah. Um, there was something from Facebook called Fast Text and Fast Text was, as it sounds, much faster at doing certain things. Um, but fast text, I think, could only really read from left to right. You know, so this bidirectionality of Burton, I think Elmo too, is um, extremely crucial. But it's not the only thing that makes Bert um, better. Um, to know what the other things are, you would have to look at the E, the R, and the T, and some other kinds of, um, some other bits of the model. Um, that are also quite revolutionary. The fact that Google published them and made them open source, it has been a huge boon to people because what it means is that um, they have these already trained models that they mm -hmm. can then train with more specialized data sets um, to, to make the, to make BERT do what they want to do in their own context, but they don't have to train it on the book corpus and they don't have to train it on Wikipedia. That's already done for you. It's all out there. All you need to do is go and download it. That sounds um, really easy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's been, so th this is why you'll find all these BERTs everywhere. You've got CyBERT in the life sciences. Um, we've got some other birds that I mentioned in the in the feature and this is what the um, Tim Nugent from Refinitiv was was talking to me about within the feature. So it's interesting you mentioned Refinitiv there. I just wonder how are data providers like Refinitiv and Bloomberg using transformer models like BERT? So um, pretty much everyone who has conversational agents or NLP models or anything like that and uses them seriously was aware of BERT and went and downloaded it and, and has been working with it. Um, and Refinitiv and Bloomberg, obviously no exceptions. Um, they, they both have something that is a, a big advantage, which is access to massive amounts of data. Mm. Um, so in the case of Refinitiv, Tim Nugent, um, who was working within their innovation lab to build a transformer model, um, he gave me this wonderful deep dive into the process. And um, his kind of insight was that there were all these different birds in different verticals. You know, there, there was um, cyber and bio bird, as, as I said earlier. Um, and he thought, you know, why not have a kind of financially trained bird? And mm. so that's what he did. He did quite a lot of intensive work to train another bird. Um, but his thought was that if he trained it really hard in the beginning. If he did a lot of work within the beginning, then it could be rolled out across the across the business in many, many, many use cases and applications. Mm -hmm. So the one that we spoke about, and I think this was probably one of the first applications, was applied to ESG, which as we know is environmental, social and governance issues. Um, so Refinitiv, obviously the you know leading data provider, they they offer ESG scores to customers as part of their um, as part of their normal duties. And um, 
as part of these services, it keeps notice of controversies affecting corporations. Um, so a lot of so basically what happens is it put in a very sort of crude way um, is that the the bird that Nugent trained is shown a news article, and then it tries to classify it into a controversy category. Mm. So so let's take you know let's take a kind of very egregious example, the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Uh, you know, if the if this model had been around then, you could have fed it this news article and the model would have put it into environmental controversy. Um, and then, so what, what they did with this ESG use case specifically was that they compared the normal BERT, so the Google BERT, trained on mm -hmm. the Wikipedia and the book corpus, and they, they trained it on that. And then they... Um, they showed it, you know, articles and kind of <laughs> went through the process with that one. And then they used their domain specific BERT and um, did the process, went through the process with the domain specific BERT and then found that the domain specific BERT was actually better and faster. So then, you know, they knew that it worked and then they could push it out to all kinds of other um, uses. So mm. Um, I think one of the examples they gave me was that in content operations, deals and development teams are using it to extract relevant news from huge sets of documents for users. So, for, like, for instance, if you wanted to know about um, ESG-related M&A, the model can accurately identify which articles are actually about an ESG-related transaction. Um, WorldCheck uses it. I think the, the famous WorldCheck database on mm. um, financial sanctions against individuals um, and that is uh, what was the other example they gave me then of course the the in icon the model can feed the most relevant articles for users who search for news about companies in investor yeah. briefs which is a, another feature of the terminal that they have um, so at Bloomberg it's it's obviously a very different businesses um, but I think the uses there are sort of fairly comparable. Um, it's also about accessing the most relevant information. Um, they take in a huge number of articles every day. Um, and then the, you know, the, without using the model yet, that's all kind of clustered. And then relevant stories are fed to terminal users. Um, what the model has helped them to do is to group those kind of relevant headlines under another headline that, so if you're looking at the terminal screen, you'll have, let's say, five stories on Tesla. Mm -hmm. um, let's say there was a big a big event, maybe an earnings call or something like that. And then out of those out of those millions and millions of stories and out of those ones that it's feeding back to you, it will generate a headline. And I think this is this is pretty impressive. I mean, this is a a machine generating a headline that reads like a human journalist wrote it. Um, so you'll kind of see that in the terminal in front of you. Hmm. That's interesting, though, because like it, then the model is also further trained by Bloomberg journalists, right, who who at the end get to decide like which headline sounds better, pretty much. Yeah, so it, it looks a bit like um, like a Facebook thumb up um, and mm. you also get a thumb down. This is not a, a, a terminal user wouldn't see this, but this is just a way of making sure that it keeps getting better and better and better. Yeah. It's like a like and dislike kind of button. Yes, exactly. Icon, I guess not exactly not really a button. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> there there are still um, I think uh, Amanda Stent, the the researcher that I spoke to for this article, she mentions um, 
what she calls clunkers, which is the kinds of mistakes that the model can still make. And this is a way of breeding out those mistakes. Um, I mean, these mistakes could be quite egregious, so you do need to keep training it. Like, I think the the example she gave me was... um, leaving out the word not in the headline. And I mean, you could see how devastating that could be, you know, yeah. <laughs> like Tesla is not profitable this year. It's a very different headline <laughs> to Tesla is profitable this year. Um, so, yeah, so so they, obviously these are, this is machine learning and you want it to keep learning. Right. So what are some of the limitations that exist? I mean, that this, um, you know, that these models have, Well, I think it's important to note that this field is constantly evolving. And what yeah. we're talking about is cutting edge now, you know, in five years, maybe, or or even less, who knows, yeah. will look a bit kind of passe. Um, and I think some of those cracks, as, as Amanda put it, are already starting to show a little bit. Um, so she mentions that, for instance, these models can be over-parameterized. Um, and that, I think talking talking to a kind of layperson, she she helpfully put it like this. So the, these models have a lot of knobs in them that you can turn to kind of tune the 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 model and you tune mm-hmm. it with the data. Um, and she says they're kind of almost too many of these knobs. So um, the the next step is to make these models much, much, much smaller and still get the same kinds of performance. Um, and someone has already started working on something which I think is such a cute name called Distilbert. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> distilling it down. Um, the other Makes thing, yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing I think is an important point, especially for these businesses that are trying to put across the notion that they're carbon neutral, that, they're, that they care about the environment, um, is that these models cost huge amounts of computing power to train. And you know, it's, it's a bit like Bitcoin mining, right? You just need mm. all this computing power. Um, but unlike Bitcoin miners, you know, they have to be accountable um, for the massive amounts of carbon that they might be producing. Um, and then of course, there is the issue of bias, which uh, you know, we started off the conversation with, um, and that's that's not, that's not exceptional to Bloomberg or Affinitive or to BERT. It's just a conversation that everyone using AI should be having at some point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I, it'll be, uh, I guess it's kind of like a wait and see kind of game. And, um, you know, you'll definitely, or we at Waters anyway, we'll be definitely following uh, any progress in this area. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's so fascinating. Um just AI in general is obviously captures the human imagination because, you know, especially when we've been prepped on, on movies like Terminator 2, <laughs> which is one of my favorite movies, but um, just the, the use cases, when people give me the kinds of deep dives into use cases that Amanda and that Tim gave me, it's just so, it's so interesting. And I, I feel it's, it's just one of the fun parts of my job is just to see how people are using these technologies in practice like this. Hmm. Well, speaking of fun, I mean, we, we do have a lot of fun at Waters, like doing deep dives into technology that we aren't necessarily trained uh, trained in and, you know, learning about new things like, yeah, like BERT, so transform models or like quantum computing, all these sort of like big things that, you know, we didn't, we don't have like, I guess, um, educational background on it. So, but anyway... <laughs> I we definitely don't. And I, I hope I haven't said anything absolutely like a clunker, like Amanda would put it. Um, <laughs> but I did spend weeks reading 
all kinds of stuff on NLP and it, I, it was really, really just so much fun and so interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm just thinking about like the fun that we have at work doing uh, in our daily, um, I guess, uh, jobs, you know, uh, being journalists for water technology, like finding out all this, um, you know, new information and basically conveying to our readers, you know, um, why if if it is or isn't important and why it isn't or is important to them but uh, let's talk about a different kind of fun now so like <laughs> th that's one fun we have at work but we can also talk about other fun that we could have at work and you recently uh, discovered um, an interesting link of like how to have fun at work why don't you tell us a bit about that Sure. So um, you asked me to prep something fun to talk about for the podcast. And this was actually quite a strange coincidence as I'd just been thinking about fun and how I'd kind of forgotten what that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's the end of winter. There's just been this coronavirus onslaught of, on, on Twitter. It's just been, it, it's it's traditionally not a great time of year. And, you know, with the, with the news cycle being what it is, it's just even worse. Um, London winters are hard on someone who is brought up in the Southern Hemisphere and can be a bit of a shock to the system we're fortunately we're heading into the spring now so i'm feeling much better um but you know the, the, all these all these coronavirus updates not improving the mood um so i think it's it's kind of an indication and maybe a bad sign about my state of mind that i had to actually google what is fun um and, and, and that led me to this article that i wanted to talk to you about today which was um it's called 25 ways to have more fun at work um, and it kind of cheered me up, although possibly not for the right reasons, mostly just because I loved imagining trying to get these past Tony. Um, <laughs> like Which one was the most outrageous for you? Oh, that, that the, you sword fight to get past him. the sword fights. <laughs> Can you imagine like beating Tony with a foam sword? I would completely. <laughs> we should all have one. And then the next time we're all together in New York, like just bash him up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's definitely kind of a Michael Scott flavor going on with a lot of these. You know, I could, uh, and, and Tony's just not a Michael Scott kind of boss. Um, <laughs> so, but I, you know, what I would love is if our if our listeners have ever heard any of these or tried any of these, and um, you know how they how they actually worked out in practice. Because you know, to be fair, on this list there are some good ideas, but just some of them are so cringy. So I picked yeah. out the ones that I thought were most cringy. Um, so number two, it's not cringy. It's Institute Pub Thursday. But I was like, th that's not, I mean, that's in London, that's just Thursday. <laughs> Thursday is effectively the beginning of the weekend in the city. I mean, the pubs are already rammed um, or they were until everyone started self-isolating. Um, but what, what I thought was interesting with this one was the article says you should celebrate making it through another month which made me worried for that workplace, wherever this person is writing this from, because, you know, what are they doing that they're worried about not making it through another month? You know, I mean, like most offices, you can reasonably expect another month of life unless you've got like a major asbestos problem or maybe major layoffs, in which case, you know, you should probably be um, not reading listicles on 25 ways to have more fun at work. You should probably have other priorities. <laughs> so, that was that was an interesting one. Um, number three, decorate the workplace. So that's like everyone can bring photos of their puppies or their, you know, their wives and their kids, which, you know, I think is a fine idea. We don't do that because we hot desk. Um, yeah. But in the New York office, the hot desking experiment has failed quite miserably. And Tony has his own whole mural of shame 
it's yeah. kind of I like mean, it's the, the same it's same. the same in hong kong too i mean we don't really technically we have this hot desk thing but we still have our own desks if you know if you know what i mean like it's yeah. when you go in it's like yeah anyone can use my desk somewhat but it's it's mine <laughs> humans are territorial i i think hot desking just doesn't work um yeah. but i mean it, it seems to be working vaguely in in london um but have you seen uh have you seen tony's wall of fame and shame yeah i have it's, right. It's Do you? <laughs> I, I I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about this um, on air, <laughs> but you can cut it out if I if I'm not. Um, but I was wondering if you've seen the cover from the old Waters issue that almost was like it was like five seconds away from making it to press, where we have this esteemed executive in a suit and tie, and behind him there's this black backdrop of a corporate office. It's got like kind of glass and steel, and it's very blurry because obviously the photographer is focusing on the the subject but somewhere in kind of in, in all of that background there's a small boy getting changed out of his underwear um <laughs> have you seen that i thought it i thought it was a statue yeah well that's what it turned out to be but no one could really <laughs> see that <laughs> it was just a kind of piece of corporate art not like an actual small child um <laughs> but it it looked like one so yeah that, that to me that you know that that to me means um that's that's what we should be decorating our our walls with the the shameful yeah. moment we almost published that cover. Um, that's okay. one that I found quite uh, funny. Not in a, I guess not in a traditionally funny way. Just funny. But anyway, that, that sorry. <laughs> it, it's it's laughter yoga. I think it's oh my so gosh. Many... That, I pulled that one out too. It's Have so you ever cringy. seen laughter yoga? Yeah, I, well, I, I I saw it just now, like before before this call. I was like, "What is this?" Because I, I thought, okay, maybe you're doing yoga and laughing at the same time. But no, no. this is like to like. Can you imagine just gathering in a group and like laughing for no reason at all? It just made me. It just made me feel like I'm looking. I'm I'm watching like a bunch of psychopaths, and <laughs> <laughs> like just randomly laughing even if it's forced it's just like a <laughs> oh, I don't know if I should cut it out no, that's, that's, a really good <laughs> that's actually a good replication of what it sounds like um there's a, a subreddit um called our cringe where people post like really cringy videos or really um yeah they're usually videos and the a laughter yoga video has topped our cringe for the last like five or six years it's it's the most embarrassing thing I've ever I've ever seen it's it's really bad um so yeah that was a, that was another one I picked out for sure mm. um the other one was setting up a humor room um which was turning the coffee room into a humor room um stocking it with stand-up comedy routines on dvd or audio tape and I was wondering what you think of that um well we don't really need dvd or audio tapes now right <laughs> You can just go on Instagram or something to follow like a comedian, and that's it. So I, I, I don't, I don't really think that would work very well. Um, I don't I think, think that, would work very well. Yeah, I mean the the one that I, I think has kind of worked. If you scroll a little bit down in in that article, it says something like um, start a fun committee. So I don't know about London. I'm not too sure about New York as well. But in the at the Hong Kong office, we have um, the social committee, which I'm quite proud to be a part of. I mean, the Hong Kong office is quite small. We only have about like uh, maybe 40 of us, although we're going. But it's important to like organize fun stuff. So we do like anniversaries and birthdays and like random events. We also 
you know, um, organize the big events like our Christmas parties and stuff like that. But um, they work sometimes and other times maybe not as successfully as we intended. But I mean, well, the social committee have fun anyway. I'm not sure about anyone else. Well, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like I don't think you should ever have fun in the office. I just think it, you know, celebrating birthdays, celebrating holidays, that's a, that's great. I mean, you know, you should foster a sense of camaraderie, esprit de corps and all of that kind of thing. Um, I think it's, you know, despite my cynical British outlook, it's it's good to have fun and feel good at work. I mean, just, you know, I think a lot of these articles that tell you to do that are couched in like it'll increase productivity. But um it's it's more important than that it's just yeah. you know like like appreciate people's time that they're spending with you you know eight hours a day of their lives every single day yeah. um but i think the most important way that employers can make love fun is just respecting time off and work-life balance and allowing leeway for parents and that kind of thing you yeah, know like exactly. like foam sword fights in the office I mean, yeah so yeah we should have specified that it was foam sword fights <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> not real oh, no Oh my god. What is that? I have no idea. Okay, oh well it stopped now. <laughs> Jesus. What? Oh my god. I might add a little bit of that and that sounds kind of funny. <laughs> no, please don't do that. <laughs> okay. No, you can do that. You can do that. Um okay, let's let's start again, shall we? Where were we? What were we talking about? Talking about foam swords. Oh yeah, so yeah, I think it's quite important that you mention it's foam swords instead of a, a real. I wouldn't want our listeners to, to actually think we were having real sword fights and all we were trying to have real sword fights at the office and and against Tony for that matter. We all know we'd we'd win over him, right? Um, I mean, I would love to hear genuine ideas from our listeners about how they have fun day to day at work, um, and remember to be light-hearted and not let coronavirus get them down. Um, but I, I just, I think foam swords just, you know, it ain't it. Uh, I, I also think there's, there's a kind of backlash happening against these fun offices. You know, there was this cliche of the startup office with the foosball table and the free beer. Um, and I remember a few years back, there was a lot of hand-wringing among financial technology companies and banks and so on, who wanted to attract the prime talent from the Facebooks and the Googles. And, you know, it was quite funny to see these like very, um, what's the word kind of historically conservative environments like banks Straight. and so on yeah exactly saying like do we need a ball pit <laughs> <You know? laughs> is that what the millennials want a ball pit um but I think the conversation has you know when I say the conversation I mean like online and just talking yeah. to people myself I think people are starting to talk about satisfaction with actual work a lot more like um in our context for instance people are talking about um like why we about retaining data science talent for instance um and the there is a definitely an awareness that you don't retain data scientists by giving them free beer you offer them access to big proprietary data sets that they wouldn't find at other companies you involve them in projects that they have ownership of and feel proud of mm. um it's that kind of thinking now uh that i think that that's where people get have fun at work right is like yeah satisfaction and autonomy and ownership of their projects it's not like um what is what's another example from this amazing list um having meetings that are not business related which i think is possibly the worst one on that entire list because if there's one thing you ask anyone 
in any industry, anywhere, it's they're going to tell you I sit in too many meetings. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think at the, at the end of the day, it's more about um, getting more sense of fulfillment from what they do, right? And if a company decides to, you know, um, supply their, as you mentioned earlier, data scientists with data sets that, you know, they wouldn't normally have access to for them to, um, I guess, experiment with, that would give them a higher sense of fulfillment and then hence they would technically uh, enjoy their job more and and enjoy being at that particular company uh, for a lot longer. Right, exactly. I mean, if you're working at Dunder Mifflin and <laughs> you have a foam sword fight, so I don't think it's going <laughs> to, I don't think it's going to improve your experience <laughs> of work any, anymore. Um, <laughs> okay, well, with that, I think, yeah, we, we can, um, uh, it'll be, it'll be very fun to hear some of the, some of our listeners' ideas and how, of how they have fun at the office. And also if, uh, you know, they have anything else to contribute on, um, transformer models and NLP in general, but thank you so much for joining this week, Joe. I really appreciate oh, it having really you on. Fun. Thank you. <laughs> it, it was fun. It was, you know, having fun at work. I, I do have fun at work and this is, this has been one of those times. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, okay. See you guys again next week. Have a great week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.